welcoming you to be in the know. We bring you insight and analysis from the Premier League's top football writers and broadcasters allowed behind closed doors. Joining you today, Jason Burt, the Chief Football Correspondent for The Daily and The Sunday Telegraph, Molly Hudson, Sports Journalist for The Times, and Ian Ladyman, the Football Editor of The Daily Mail. There is only one place to start and... Uh, we will go to the Sunday Telegraph headline, lockdown to devastate sports clubs. First of all, um, Jason, let's come to you and your reaction to the lockdown and, and a bit of an explain on how the Premier League isn't affected by this. Yeah, well, obviously, it's, it's devastating news for everyone and um, sort of felt it was coming the last few days. But it's been interesting, the reaction towards sports and professional sport, elite sport in particular. I think if you look at the Premier League football, which is obviously what we cover by and large, um, the protocols in place are just so strict. They are so extensive um, that I think there was, it's no surprise to me that, that, that elite football will, will carry on. Uh, obviously, financially, there's a big issue there in terms of making, making sure they get the money they want. But also, I think in terms of the, and I know Putin make a lot of things about this, about the national psyche and how people respond and confidence and sort of morale. I think it is important that things like football carry on. Um, but there's no reason at all for, for, for the Premier League to stop right now. These, these protocols are incredibly, incredibly strict. And I think uh, it makes sense for them to, to, to continue during this period of time. Ian, um, in, in terms of a grassroots level and the mental health of a nation now, how concerned are you that football at grassroots level and for children is stopping now? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it probably, I think it probably has to um, because the, the safety can't be guaranteed in the same way that Jason rightly says that safety can be guaranteed at Premier League, Premier League level. I mean, Premier League training grounds and Premier League football stadiums are probably just about among the safest places in the country right now. But you can't say that about um, about um, football and other sports further down the pyramids. And although you know everybody in a perfect world would like it to carry on because it is a great release for people who play and it's a great release for people who um, organise the clubs and officiate and go to watch. Um, but if it, you know if if certain other parts of uh, movement in society is deemed to be dangerous, and I, I guess that that is too. In terms of the effect it will have on people, um, it really just depends how long this, this lockdown lasts. Um, if it is just a month, which I have, I think probably most of us have our doubts about, if it is just a month, people will get through fine. If it's two months, three, like, three months, it will be harder. It will be absolutely harder, but, but that kind of brings us around in a rather neat circle to the Premier League again. And I think it is a bit of a cliche, I suppose, to say that um, football on the television is... is, is is a great kind of boost for people. It um, it gives people an indication or some semblance of normality. But I think it's absolutely true. I think it's absolutely true that football is and other sports are serving a purpose, probably more than ever at the moment. So I really do think that the Premier League um, should be allowed to continue and should continue until there is a convincing scientific argument for it not to. And I must admit, I don't, I don't see that argument arriving any time soon, if at, if at all. Molly, we just uh, enjoyed an FA Cup final weekend with the women's game. You had an extraordinary week from doing an FA Cup final preview on Friday, then going up to the Wolves match. Um, it seems a relentless weekend for you. But where do you think this leaves the women's game? I think it's difficult. And I think it's kind of a little bit like we've, we've re-round several months and we're kind of back where we started a little bit. And I think back then there were definitely more fears for the women's game and what lockdown might mean for it. And I think, you know, as Jason mentioned, the protocols in the Premier League, we have those now in the Women's Super League in the Championship too. And that's a really positive step that, yes, the league ended, but we managed to, to get everything ready kind of in that pre-season period. And we've managed to have, you know, a really successful Women's Super League. It's been on TV and I think we kind of haven't lost too much momentum. But the, the downside, as, as Jason said, was it is the finances. It's, it's where does this money come from? Because the pandemic has hit the FA so hard. And ultimately, yes, these protocols are making it the safest possible environment. But they're also costing, you know, millions of pounds to, to maintain that environment. And particularly for the women's game, it, it's not the same as the Premier League with, with the broadcasting deals and the kind of money involved in that. So I think the it might be a case of the Premier League having to step in just to ensure that we can continue that testing kind of protocol. 
so that we we can carry on we can have have that safety bubble that that men's football has um and i guess the the second kind of problem is the championship and the fact that it's a part-time division maybe it will still be able to be funded but it kind of puts the pressure back on the players some of which are key workers and you know obviously it's a really difficult time in society generally and that's only amplified for them that kind of have one foot in this football bubble and one foot back in in normal life I guess. Jason obviously the Telegraph doing so much on Project Big Picture and 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 every paper reacting but another exclusive um, from Tom Bark Tom Morgan today that Clark had input into all 18 drafts of Project Big Picture yeah. um, and and right now isn't the question this just goes to prove that everyone was going for the power grab and all this time all these ramifications it should have been focusing on the lower leagues and looking after their interests and now where does it leave them and what does that say about the football hierarchy and their self-interest well i guess the clubs who are pushing for project big picture the people involved would say that's what exactly what they're doing you know they wanted to filter down money for the lower leagues and redistribute the cash obviously the counter argument to that is it's a it's a, it's a power grab and they, they, they refute that. But I mean, if you look at the way they, they structured it, the original plans, it was obviously to concentrate the voting rights and, the, and this, basically the, the running of football in, in, in the hands of a, a few elite clubs. So why, how can it not be a, a power grab? And I think there is, we all know that there needs to be a, a, what, what people call a reset in, in football. We've, we talked about this at the start of the lockdown, in fact, and obviously people talking about how can it be that the richest sport in the world has a distribution model that doesn't work? You know, that, that obviously the, the, the money is concentrated so much in the, the big clubs or the bigger clubs. And obviously down the leagues, um, people are suddenly in, in, in hardship. And, you know, you've got all these huge, fantastic broadcast deals and this incredible product um, that goes around the world. And yet we, we, we've, got, we've got poverty in terms of clubs going to the wall within a few weeks of football stopping. And that should never have happened in the first place. The model, the model is all about self-interest, whichever, whichever way you look at it. And I think the problem is that you can't get around that impasse. Greg Clark's involvement is fascinating because he obviously put out his statement saying he walked away from these talks, which obviously caused an awful lot of problems with some of the other people involved in them. And they've come back both guns uh, blazing at him. And I think he's got a lot of questions to answer in terms of his actual involvement, but also how much did he, how much did he structure this? How much did he input into this? Was he just listening to what they were saying or was he actually driving part of it? And it seems to be the latter. The, the more and more we hear about what was going on with Project Big Picture, he'll turn around and say as the chairman of the FA, it's his duty as a custodian of football to be involved in this, this sort of level of talks, but it is quite clandestine. Um, and it does, and again, it's with all these things, we need transparency. We need greater sort of debate about what should be happening with football. If you look at Project Big Picture, we still had no statements from Liverpool and Manchester United about it. They haven't come and talked about it. They haven't talked, explained their plans. And it's again, it's just piecing things together. And it's, as ever with football, people are too afraid to put their head above the parapets and just say exactly what they want. Ian, with the departure of uh, the top man at Barcelona, making it very clear that there are plans in place that people are committing, how long until a breakaway do you think? Well, I, I'm not sure that, that that there will be one simply because this is this is this is a such a you know this is a new um, variation on a very very old theme. Um, European Super League has been mooted for 15 years. Um, I was reading a, a book recently about um, Liverpool and Everton um, in the 80s, and uh, lo and behold, um, there was a chapter in that book about an attempted breakaway back back then that was being led by um, in in the English First Division. That eventually led to the formation of the Premier League. Eventually, um, and that was a very similar thing, similar rhetoric, similar similar secrecy, similar clubs involved, similar motives. I agreed, um, and and a, and a lust for power. And it's the same with the, with, with the European Super League. The thing with the European Super League is that I don't, I never ever have, have sensed that there is a public appetite for for it. Nobody, because there already is a European Super League. It's called the Champions League. Everybody's allowed into it these days. It's harder not to get in the Champions League than it is to get in it these days. That's because that's been driven by the big clubs to make sure that they're always in it, even if they only finish fourth. Um, but I don't find an appetite. You speak to football supporters about the structure of English football, and they want it. They want it left alone. Nobody wants to change it. Nobody wants to change it apart from those with a vested interest, i.e., the people who are seeking more and more uh, cash, a bigger slice of the pie right at the top of the food chain. Let's go back to the football. We're now going into a Champions League, rolling into next weekend. It is relentless. But Molly, do we even really know 
who the Premier League prize fighter is. Liverpool, Jota coming to the rescue again after they went a goal down once again and won in three successive games now, I think. But can you see who the title contender is and how much will that fixture Manchester City against Liverpool tell us this weekend? I feel like it almost changes day by day, doesn't it? It almost it feels as though you watch one game, you watch maybe Everton, you think, oh, you know, they've won. They, they, they might be in contention. There's, a, there's an outside chance this season is, is maybe the craziest that we may ever have just because of the circumstances. And then the week after, they're going to drop points and you think that was a ridiculous suggestion. That's never going to happen. And then it kind of rotates like that through the teams because, you know, I don't think there's a single team that have thoroughly impressed where you've watched all of their games and thought, you know, obviously they're not, probably not going to win every game, but that there's been kind of obvious shortcomings. When you look at the teams on paper, there's areas where they are weak and that that's kind of already been shown. And I think, you know, particularly for Liverpool, obviously losing Virgil van Dijk, that, that's already a, a kind of massive moment in the season. But at the same time, they have managed to pick up points. They have, you know, obviously Man City are kind of, almost feels like they're behind because they started that, that week later. And I think actually there's, there, that kind of contributes to the weirdness of the table. The fact that United and City were that week later, then you look at the table and you obviously you've got Everton, you've got Wolves. Would you really look at those two as the title contenders? No, but they're the, the teams that have kind of done well so far. So I think Manchester City v Liverpool is going to be a big case of which of those teams can overcome the shortcomings and still get the results, which I, which I think is going to be really important kind of going forward, not just on that game. It will be a real launching pad for whichever one of them manages to do that, I think. Ian, um, Liverpool go to Atalanta, Manchester City are at home in the Champions League against Olympiacos, though, and they really took Wolves to the sword, actually, in last last season um, in the Europa League. Not an easy team to get through anymore. But after Pep says he's not going to the new camp, do you think he's um, turning a corner? Because people were really concerned that he was unhappy at Manchester City, he didn't see his future was going to be there. How are you assessing their side at the moment? Um, so firstly, I don't I don't buy into the theory that that the kind of um, uncertainty about Guardiola's future is necessarily affecting players. I think anyone who knows footballers knows that they don't necessarily think that way. You know, the, the footballers are very kind of adept at kind of focusing on very 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 narrow things, which is essentially the next training session and, and the next game. Um, I think at the moment, generally, that that, that football and the results are being skewed by the number of games and especially the fact that the top teams are playing Saturday Champions League, Saturday, Sunday Champions League, week on, week week on. Um, in terms of City and Liverpool, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if Guardiola rested some players this week for um, the Champions League. He's had two good results already. I think he might think that he can get through um, the game in midweek with a slightly understrength side to, to, to save um, players for the weekend because if you look at the table, um, Liverpool, I know that Liverpool have played a game more, but they already have a what you might call a, a decent lead on City already. And if they were to beat City at the weekend, then that lead becomes, off the top of my head, about 10 points, I think, which is a lot. I mean, that's a 10-point lead um, between the two biggest, uh, best teams in the country is a lot. I think Guardiola will focus very much on, um, on, on the weekend game and just try and get through the Champions League fixture on the way. For Liverpool, it's slightly harder. I mean, they are. I watched, I watched the game yesterday against West Ham. Again, they ground it. They ground it out. They were good at that last season. Liverpool. They didn't always play brilliantly last season. They ground it out. They're going to have to grind it out again, and they're, and they're showing that already that they are going to have to find a way to win games because at the moment they're nowhere near form that you'd expect them to be as champions. Jason, um, you've got to look to Everton as Manchester United as well. Manchester United. Away, have to go away to Istanbul on Wednesday and then they've got a 12.30 kickoff against Everton. That's tough. It is, but look at their squad. Uh, and one, one thing that irritates me about Manchester United is this idea that they're not ready to challenge. And if you look at their squad, they have an incredibly strong squad. They have a deep squad. They've probably got the biggest, just about the biggest squad in the Premier League. Midweek, they played Leipzig and they had Marcus Rashford and Bruno Fernandes on the bench. 
Um, when they played Chelsea, they, they had, you know, other big players on the bench. Pogba was on the bench. Um, they've got a very strong squad. And I think sometimes, and I feel, I feel this especially with Manchester United and Arsenal, the two clubs who feel sorry for themselves quite a lot of the time, I think because they're not what they were. And I think sometimes they don't look at what they've got. And I think they often sort of act as if they are struggling when actually, if you look at the depth of their squads and who they've got available, they've got, they've got strong squads. In saying that, you're absolutely right. It is a difficult trip to go out to Istanbul. Obviously, very different in the circumstances right now. But I, I think they've got the squad to cope. And what, what I think what will happen this season, I think this is the unknown factor, is, is it will be the survival of the fittest. And I think the, the teams with depth in the squad will eventually come through. And that, that points towards the, the bigger sides, you know, the sort of better resource sides. What you've seen quite a lot this season is teams have got bigger squads. They haven't sent so many players out on loan. Um, so I think they're aware of the fact that there are going to be more injuries. So I think that sometimes the early pace setters will just get reeled in because of that. In saying that, there is an opportunity for two teams in particular, Wolves and Everton. You look at those two and think, well, they're not, they haven't got European football. So they're, they're not in that cycle that the other teams are in of, you know, playing weekend, midweek and having these sort of long trips. So they, they have the opportunity to actually get, get points, especially now, try and get into that frame for the top four. But I think, you know, I, I, do, I do get irritated by Manchester United quite a lot as a team because I think they, they don't really realise that the resources available to them, what they've spent is incredible. You know, the team they've got, I think I did it, we looked at it yesterday, their first choice back four cost £100 million more than Liverpool's. You know, and you're thinking, they, they, but they, they, they almost like not plead poverty, but it's always another player they need or something else. I think they're in a stronger position than they, they let on and they should be challenging. They absolutely should be challenging for the league title. Molly, you and Molyneux, do you think being out of, out of European contention could actually see Nuno drive forward? And he was talking about the five sub rule and there's going to be a big push for that now, isn't there, over the next, the next weeks? Yeah, I think so. And I think with Wolves kind of going into that game, sort of wondering will they be able to start and it feels like when they're on form and when they're playing well they're absolutely up there with with kind of the, the best of the teams in the league and we've, we've seen that over the course of last season they they really did manage to challenge and that was with that ridiculous schedule the kind of length of their season was the worst of any and I think actually it's interesting what Jason said there about the fact that maybe teams could be reeled in and you wonder if there will be a kind of delayed hangover from that season because we, we talk about the kind of weird preparation, the weird build-up that all the teams had. And Wolves would have, would have struggled the most just for the sheer amounts of, of games they played. Um, and I know Nuno doesn't always want to rotate a huge amount. Um, so I think it, it's an interesting one because they, they did actually play very well against Crystal Palace and they looked really exciting. And I think, you know, it is about that strength in depth. And they've made, you know, Fabio Silva still hasn't really had a huge chance yet and we haven't seen the best of him and obviously he's maybe a signing for the future so they do have they do have depth but as Jason says not not to the kind of extent of of a Manchester United or of an Arsenal and ultimately that will probably catch up with them later in the season. Ian reeling them in but maybe leading the way it's all happening on Merseyside with Ancelotti at Everton. He says that he would like to stay at Everton now for longer than he stayed at Real Madrid, longer than he's stayed at any of his clubs. He wants to base himself there. He's very happy there. How much could Merseyside now shape the narrative of football? Yeah, I think that's maybe slightly premature to say that, that Merseyside will be kind of you know where it's at for the foreseeable future. I think there'll be you know two clubs in Manchester and a few clubs in London who might have something to say about that. But um and but that if, if Ancelotti's saying that um you know look all managers say no manager turns up at club and says I'm only staying if only staying for a season. So um let's wait and see. But if you're an Everton fan that is absolutely what you want to hear because that is what they need because we all know that the turnover of managers at Everton as it is at many clubs has been far too um rapid. Um, you know, going back to the Martinez and Cumin uh, and Silva, and uh, you know, and each time Everton thought they had had the one. I think everyone thought that Ronald Cumin would do a great job. I think in different circumstances at a different time, he would have done. Certainly thought that Marcus Silva would do a, a good, you know, a very good job. And now Ancelotti is it does appear to be in the early stages of building something of merit to Everton. So he has to stay. He has to stay. They have to. They have to find a way to keep him happy to 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 make him stay because his impact has been profound already. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Everton, for the first time in a long time, 
are capable not just of the occasional good performance but of of a consistency of a level but he will know and i think as they as they found out recently when they lost at southampton and to be fair they probably should have lost at home to liverpool as well he will know that 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 squad is still is still three four five players from being what it will have to be if it wants to be a top four challenger consistently so um it's great to see to see them up there but, you know, just as it is great to see a, a club like Wolves, um, because the Premier League needs that. There's not a football writer in the country who wouldn't agree with that. The Premier League always needs freshening up. The one thing that I worried about at the end of the last two seasons was that we were just going to watch Liverpool and Manchester City for the next decade. And no one, apart from Liverpool and Man City supporters, wants that. Nobody wants that. So it'd be terrific for us all, terrific for football if Everton can get a bit of forward thrust from, from Carlo that, 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 um, that endures. Um, but I think he's probably one, two, probably two transfer windows at least away from, from assembling that squad. Which, which leads me into a question we were talking about before we came on air, um, Jason. I, I said that I thought Carlo Ancelotti at the start of the season, when he said for the signings he's been given, he would expect to be going to win the title. And I said, I think he needs to revise his expectations. <clears throat> so what I what I'm seeing of them, I'm excited by them. It's so uncertain at the moment. I have this inkling he could do it. And uh, Jason, you just absolutely don't think that there's that depth of squad, do you? You just kicked Not, out of the water. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it's premature. Um, I think they had a very good window. Uh, they brought in some very good experienced players. who obviously hugely strengthened the, the team. And obviously, Hannes in particular has been a revelation. We didn't quite know what to expect from him. We know the talent he's got, but he's barely played. And he's come in and been absolutely fantastic. Obviously, he set the team up really well to get the best out of him. And we we see how Dominic Calvert-Lewin has progressed and Michael Keane. So you look at that team and think, yeah, they absolutely are going in the right direction. Could well be a top four contender. I just think a title challenge will be a little bit premature. And I think it was a little bit of a reality check down at Southampton where they were quite, quite well beaten. But from... Carlo Ancelotti's point of view, he, he is used to challenging for titles. He's not going to turn around and say, actually, no, I just want to finish, you know, top eight or top six or something. And I think sometimes when you talk like that, um, you, you then lower the bar. And he's all about raising the bar because that's what he does. So, you know, you don't want to manage work with Cristiano Ronaldo and Ibrahimovic to come in and say, well, actually, no, you know, consolidation and, and maybe a Europe League place is quite good for us. You want him to say, no, I want to be challenging for the title. And obviously that in itself, raises the ambition at the club and puts more pressure on, 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 on the owner to sort of help him to reshape that team because there's an awful lot of work to do with that squad. You know, it's a very unbalanced squad. It's a, it's, a, it's a squad where you've got a collection of players who've been bought by different people. You've got a director of football there, Marcel Brands, who we don't quite know how much input he's having anymore. And you've got Ancelotti, who is a very adept manager, who, who the, the buys that have come in since he's been there, you can tell are his buys. They, they are all his buys. They are players that he wanted. I think Decore is probably the only one that predates it. But, you know, he would have wanted Decore, but he wanted a bit more experience and a bit more know-how in that team. Alan, in particular, you see, that is a definite Carlo Ancelotti buy. So he's getting he's getting what he wants and they're going in the right direction. I just feel that, you know, I just think they'll be caught short in terms of if you get a couple more injuries, if James isn't quite able to sustain it, which, he, which you'll find very difficult to do over the course of the season, then they'll, they, they, their, their backup isn't as good. And I think that's probably where they will be caught out a little bit in the end but they could well finish top four I think there is an absolute opportunity for lots of teams like them like Wolves like Leicester to get in the top four this season it, it will also be interesting to see whether Dominic Calvert-Lewin can continue to score at the rate that he has so far because he's never done it before what he's doing at the moment is, is <coughs> it's with the, in the nicest possible way slightly out of character in terms of the way his career has gone so far it's a huge ask for him to continue to score in the way that he has been and they, and they will need him to because back up the centre forward isn't isn't great. Talking about that, and let's look at one club, Liverpool, who suddenly got in Virgil van Dijk and it changed everything and parallel that with Chelsea. Ian, do you think now they've got Mendy, now they've got Silver, and we know the forwards they've got, they've now found the key to let those forwards go forward with the strength and back to go and put on a big title charge? It's funny, actually, because I when they signed Silver, I thought, oh, he's too... He's too old, he'll be too, he's too old, he'll be too slow. That's 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 a, that's a vanity sign that won't work. And I'm watching them play Manchester United uh, last weekend, and he makes that absolutely superb block um, from Cavani with about ten minutes to go, which which would have won Manchester United the game. And all of a sudden, you think, oh, okay, and maybe make, might want to look, have a look at that assessment again. Um, 
No, in answer to your question, no. I don't think Chelsea will, will challenge for the title. I think they're getting slowly to where they need to be. Um, Frank Lampard takes a little bit of stick at, at, at times. Um, I actually look at Chelsea and quite like the way that Frank's gone about his management in the in the year or so that he's been there. The, the, great, the nice thing about, about Lampard, as, as opposed to some previous Chelsea managers, is that you can actually kind of see what he's trying to do. You can kind of see the way that he wants to play. And Chelsea are finally kind of buying players for specific positions. And Frank tends to play players in the right positions, which, again, not all previous Chelsea managers have done. Um, but he, what he needs to do, this, he needs to produce something tangible this season, obviously. And they need, they need to defend better. And he'll need to get a little bit more out of his new signings, which, which again, is very, very difficult. When you sign, how many players was it? Four or five players in a, in a window, three attacking players, all expensive very, very difficult um, to get them all kind of singing the same song early, early on, and he hasn't quite managed to do that yet. Molly, do you agree with that assessment on Chelsea? Yeah, I think in a weird kind of way, I think maybe the, the midweek games is almost helping Frank a little bit because he has had all of those new players come in, and we know that arrivals into the Premier League, the, the only way you get them used to it is to play them. And I think they're particularly in the Champions League, we've seen they kind of built the, that base of, of a clean sheet, the first nil-nil that Frank Lampard never got, which was just remarkable. Um, it's, it's almost helping them to, to get in that rhythm, to get the communication going, to, to kind of work up the best way to, to utilise particularly those attacking trio that, that they signed because they're such good, exciting, positive names on paper. But we know that the, the Premier League isn't that easy. You don't just get to, you don't play the game on paper. You know, it, it's how it clicks, it's how it works. And I think for them to get that confidence, it's then showing that they come back into the, the Premier League and we see Ziyech is, is kind of improving and settling in now. And I think actually, maybe we won't see the best of that trio and maybe the best of Chelsea until a little bit later in the season when they have had that time to settle in. So, all to be seen in terms of the real title contenders. No one's quite certain yet. We're going to be looking at England, the internationals, and Project Big Picture in the second half. But first of all, before we go into the break, I want us to discuss your copy casualties. You are lucky enough to be behind closed doors. We only have the cameras now and your brilliant words, of course, to really give us that scene. So, what's a moment, a copy casualty that you haven't managed to get into print that gives you a real insight of what's happening behind closed doors. Going to you first, Ian. Well, you've thrown me there because I thought I thought it was a copy casualty from my kind of career rather than the last couple of months. So I'm <laughs> gonna have to go slightly off, off piste here. Um, I was thinking about this this last night and no no football journalist is remotely interested in, hear, in hearing another football journalist talk about a story that they could have got because if you didn't get it, then you didn't get it. But um, anyway, this is one. Um, it was um, at the last World Cup, actually. I was in, um, I was in, I was at a game at Saint, at Saint Peter in Saint Petersburg. I think it was a Brazil game, and it was, um, and it was halfway through the second half. And um, when, as Molly and Jason will know, and yourself will know, Carrie, that it's when you kind of, for your first edition kind of piece for the first edition of the paper is when you're really kind of revving up and starting to write and. Um, and concentrate. And I got this text message and I looked at my phone and it was and it was a text from someone who I wouldn't necessarily expected to, to have this kind of information. And this message just said, it was a very, very short message. It just said, Ronaldo to Juventus. And um, at that time, um, there had been some speculation that Cristiano might be on his way, but there was no mention of Juventus. I just looked at my phone and thought, well, I just don't see how that person could know something like that. So I just put the phone down. I thought, um, I thought, I think we'll just deal with that one tomorrow, um, and maybe speak to the office and maybe have a, you know, <coughs> kind of rally around the troops at the mail and see if we can start making some calls and see if we can put some flesh on on that one. And of course, it and of course it broke in the Italian <laughs> Italian newspapers the next morning. And um, the only thing that I was glad about was that um, I hadn't. I hadn't mentioned it to the office because if I had mentioned it to the office, then they would have been saying to me, "Why the hell didn't you just write? Didn't you just write it then?" But um, it was one of those where the next morning you think, "Well, maybe could I could I have done that? Could I have done that differently?" The answer is is actually no. You couldn't have done it differently. You couldn't just you couldn't just throw something like that into print on the back of one on the back of one text message from one person who who and without knowing where it had come from. But it was a uh, bad timing to say the least. 
the benefit of hindsight is an evil, evil thing. Um, Jason? Well, what I quite liked, um, one of the few things that's been good about um, behind closed doors games is actually hearing what goes on on the touchline quite a lot. That and being a little part next to the stadium, of course. Um, but obviously, we, we, we do hear the managers in action. And it's interesting that some are much more vocal than others. Mikel Arteta, I, I, he just seems to be on Alexander Lacazette's case the whole time. It's always lacquer, 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 lacquer. He's always talking to him the whole time. He clearly doesn't like the way he, he doesn't uh, work hard enough for him. But I was quite taken by something earlier this season when Jurgen Klopp, um, Liverpool were playing Chelsea and um, uh, Christensen got sent off. And a few of the people on the bench at Chelsea started clapping and applauding. And Klopp just turned around and absolutely gave them an, a, a total volley of like, that's just not what we do. You know, the few expletives in there. And you should, all, all the guys on the bench just went, right back and fear on their faces. And I thought, you know, fair play to him. You know, he, that's absolutely right. You know, the, the, the player being set up, you don't clap it. But all the, the, some of his uh, younger younger substitutes on, and play, people on the backroom staff started clapping and he just turned around and gave them an absolute volley. And I, yeah, I say it's been quite interesting watching managers in action, how quiet some are, how, how loud some are. But I've been quite taken by that moment. Yeah. What you also, sorry to interrupt, what you also learn on a similar, similar uh, theme to Jason, what you also learn behind closed doors, is how 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 loud pl pl players scream when they get they get tackled when they get tackled. Bios is the worst. Yeah, well, seriously, every time, and it's obviously well. I'd imagine five percent of the time it's genuine. Ninety-five percent of the time it's just to attract the attention of the referee. They all scream blue murder when 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 uh, they get tackled. And also the the, um, the backroom staff who sit not on the bench but further up the kind of stand towards where we sit. You know whether it's just whether it's physios or 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 analysts or whoever, and they just spend they spend the whole game screaming at the referee from from that from that from that position. It's almost as if they're paid just to go hey 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 every every time something happens. You just sit there thinking, well, referee's not listening to you, mate. You're about twenty five rows back in the stand. You know, just give it a rest, will you, Molly? Yeah, it's it's a little bit a little bit similar to what the guys were saying. Obviously, um, with with the behind closed doors games, you particularly in women's football, a lot of the stadiums are quite small, so a lot of them are like non-league grounds. You look at like Ball on Wood or Kings Meadow. Obviously, um, used to be AFC Wimbledon's ground, and you look in the stands and where obviously we sit, literally in the stands as press. Now you know we don't have the the kind of luxuries we used to have all the time with desks and plug sockets and whatnot. Sometimes it's it's not that simple anymore. And um, particularly at Kings Meadow, you're sat very close to the subs, um, the subs and the the kind of members of the squad that haven't made the matchday squad. And there was a particular game. It was Arsenal v Chelsea, and Vivian Miedemar, who who is the top scorer in the history of the WSL, is a very kind of nonchalant player um she she has this unique ability to kind of wander into a game do something amazing and then kind of wander out and that's sort of it um and it was it was about just approaching half time in the Chelsea game and she swore and she said come on really loud and she's getting really frustrated and you just heard the entire of the Arsenal bench start laughing and it's so strange because it's something that you just wouldn't pick up you'd never hear that because there'd be a crowd and there'd be you know managers shouting and all of that sort of thing and I think it, it's really funny to see that the players react essentially the exact same way that we do. It's just that we don't normally hear it. And that's, as Jason said, it's one of the, the rare benefits, I guess, of behind closed doors that you, you get an insight that you would never have. And I suppose it's, it's just a shame that, that that comes at the cost of, of obviously the fans being there. Certainly does, but those stories are just fantastic. So thank you so much. We're going to go into the break now. We'll come back and we'll talk about England and international duty as Oli Gunnar Solskjaer says that Greenwood should be available for Southgate. Welcome back to Be In The Know. Yes, it is all happening this week. Champions League, Premier League and Gareth Southgate will announce his squad for the internationals. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has said that Greenwood will be available and he would welcome his return to the squad, although he wouldn't ever tell Southgate who he should be selecting. Ian, does Southgate need him now? Yes. Uh, well, does he need him? Um, you need your best players. And uh, Mason Greenwood is, um, is 
a very, very good young footballer, a generational talent, as people keep describing him as. And, and, and for once, I think it's probably appropriate. Um, I haven't seen many young footballers, especially in his position, look so at home and so confident and so naturally gifted when it comes to scoring goals as, as Mason Greenwood has looked. Um, so I think he will be back in the squad. Um, Gareth was right to leave him out last time after what happened in Iceland. Absolutely right to leave him out. And I think he would be absolutely right uh, to bring him back. Uh, he's had an interesting few weeks, Mason, because there was obviously um, stories written about um, timekeeping issues. Dolly Gunnar Solskjaer clearly didn't want to um, uh, have it out in the open. He's twice said that it's not an issue for him. Um, and let's hope it's been resolved because what we don't want is a player like Mason Greenwood with all his talent um, to be sidetracked by issues away from the field. Um, um, he's, a, he's in a great position at Manchester United. He's in the team. If you picked, if you picked a team for an FA Cup final tomorrow at Manchester United, Mason Greenwood would be in that team. And I would suggest that if he continues to play the way that he has been playing so far, I think if England found themselves in a European <coughs> Championship final um, next summer, I don't think he'd be far from that team either. I really do think he's that good. Jason, Tammy Abraham, is he going to fight his way back into that side, do you think? I think it's going to be difficult for him. Um, obviously, he started yesterday. Um, but I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin in particular will, will be the one who's put a lot of pressure on his place. I think Calvert-Lewin's performances for England during the last get-together have pushed him ahead of Abraham, for sure. Um, so I think that'd be a worry for, for Abraham. And obviously, we already talked about Chelsea's attacking options and, you know, they are they are vast. So he's going to have a struggle to get regular game time at Chelsea, just you know, notwithstanding the fact they've got a lot of matches. So he's in a slightly precarious situation, but, you know, it's competition for places. We've got Danny Ings as well in there. So I think he, obviously, he deserves a chance. So I think suddenly England look like they've got more options up front. I, I totally agree with Ian on, on Mason Greenwood. I think he is a generational talent. Um, so we need to get him integrated into the squad as quickly as possible. So I think Abraham is, is in a vulnerable position, I've got to say. Um, I think he's a good player. Whether or not he's good enough, you know, to be the sort of top-level striker for England, I'm not so sure. Um, I think there might be better options out there, but at least they've got some strength and depth and some options available to Gareth Southgate. Molly, it seems to be the re recurring theme now. Mason Mount or Jack Grealish, and Mason Mount really proved his his worth on Saturday. But how much is that going to be a thorn in the side to Gareth Southgate, and how does he handle it? I think it is a little <coughs> bit. I think maybe it's a mark of how talented both players are that they kind of evoke such debate and which kind of way England goes forward because it does feel a little bit like it, it's unlikely that they're both going to play and it is going to be an either-or kind of situation. And I think particularly for, for fans, obviously you watch you watch your club and Chelsea fans are going to back Mount and Villa fans are going to back Jack Greenish. But actually, it's kind of a strange one in terms of international football. We've seen that not always players that do so well at club are able to fit in at the national team. It doesn't mean they're any less of a very good player. It just means sometimes in that that era or that particular squad doesn't have the right players to suit them. Um, and I think it will be interesting going forward which one kind of fits. And in a way, I think at the minute, it's certainly Mason Mount that, that fits the best in that environment. It, it doesn't mean that Jack Grealish isn't an incredible player. It just means that maybe in the England team right now, Mount is the better fit. And I think that's that's what's really difficult for international managers. You know, as Jason said there, you've got a lot of certainly forward players in, in really good form for their clubs. And it's not only who does he pick, but who does he pick alongside who and how do they fit together, which I think, you know, is, is part of the, the problem that makes international management so difficult. I think Southgate wanting to be a little cautious in that approach by by playing Mason and, and Ian, maybe that's going to be quite a wise approach again against Belgium with Eden Hazard back and in fine form with an absolute screamer at the weekend. Yeah, he scored a goal, hasn't he? That's his first goal for a year or so or something, which is a good one as well. Um, yeah, I'm not, yeah I, I, look, Mason now is ahead of Jack Grealish in, the, in, the, in Gareth's thoughts. That is clear. That was clear from what from, from Gareth's selection in the last... Uh, um, the last triple header that England, England had. It's an interesting one, but I mean, I kind of sympathise with those who kind of pushed for Grealish. And I sympathise a little bit with Grealish himself because he played, he played so well, didn't he, in the first game of the, of the three games. And he was 
pretty much the best player on the field. And then to not get a single minute in the next two games that followed, I suppose, leave, leaves him thinking, well, kind of, what, what was the point? But, you know, it's a, it's a test for someone like Grealish because, and I'm, I'm not suggesting for a minute that Gareth was setting the trap on purpose. He clearly wasn't. But it is a test for someone like Grealish now to how he responds. If he kind of listens to everything that's been said and written about that particular subject and allows himself to feel sorry for himself and think that it's just not fair, then, you know, the England manager will, will soon pick up on that and we'll probably never see Jack Grealish in an England shirt again. If he goes away and thinks, right, you know, I've just got to play better, I've just got to play more consistently, even better than I've been playing for Aston Villa, then he'll be back in the squad and at some point he'll get another chance. Uh, Mason Mount is just, I suppose, more of a Gareth Southgate template, isn't he, for lots of reasons. Um, and, and, and that and that, is, that has worked in his favour. And it has to be said, whilst myself and lots of other people were writing pieces about how unfair it was that Jack wasn't playing in that last game of the triple header, Mason Mount actually played really well in that game. And um, that shouldn't be that shouldn't um, that shouldn't go unnoticed. Jason Redden has our back. Um, Kevin De Bruyne was struggling, I think, somewhat with injury in, in in that encounter. How much? How tough is that away match going to be for England now, with the weight of the games, with the strength of Belgium? I think it's really tough. Um, I'm hoping there are shades of when they went away to Spain a couple of years ago and, and, and won in Seville that they'll actually put on that sort of performance. I'm slightly worried about the England team at the moment. I think. Um, I'm worried that Gareth has become a little bit too conservative in his approach. I think he's gone into a kind of a default mode of trying to damage, limit, limit the damage and, and trying to sort of get through games. I think we're in danger without being too harsh of going backwards here. Um, I think with the players available to him, I don't think this approach, the formation is, is working. I think he needs to think, rethink the way he's doing things, trying to get the best out of some of his attacking players in particular. So I'm a little bit worried about the, the, the progress of the team. And I think Belgium, you know, we saw at Wembley in that first half hour in particular, I mean, they, 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 they took England apart. You know, they absolutely took England apart. And you think England had a fairly defensive approach and that didn't work because it's, well, it just didn't work. I mean, there was were, were so much space behind the fullbacks and so on, wingbacks. So I'm, I'm a bit worried about it. I've got to say, I, I think that England have got to reorganise themselves and think what's best for them going forward. I think, without being too harsh, he's lost his nerve a little bit, Southgate. And, and I think I think he needs to re rethink about the team and the approach and the formation and the progress that's been made and not be too worried about, that sounds really weird saying this, but not be too worried about the results right now and just think about the progress of the team rather than the results. Is he not just man managing considering the weight of the games with the players? Do you think it's a conservative approach to get through this? I think, uh, yeah, I understand that in terms of rotation and the size of the squad he picked and the players available. Um, it was perverse not to play Grealish against Belgium at some stage when you, you know, uh, sorry, Denmark, sorry, when you're down to 10 men and he's a, he's a, he's a player who can hold on to the ball and he, he would gain you yards at the pitch. I, I do understand what you're saying, but I think the change of formation, I just don't agree with at all. I just don't think it's what's, what's best for England going forward. I think it is too negative. Um, they haven't quite got the players to work that formation. I know, I know the concerns about it and it's about getting control of the midfield, but actually I think he needs to be bolder again. And he's got it in him, Gareth Southgate, and I think he needs to return to that. Ian, um, I'm going to come to you. A special, um, a special report by Ian Herbert and a very sad weekend for football, losing Nobby Styles, but th there have to be bigger questions, don't they? He says, will football act before we lose all our 1966 heroes? An FA report saying there's a five-fold increase in Alzheimer's from football, certainly of that generation as well, from heading the, heading the ball and the PFA means testing um, Nobby to give him support him having to sell his World Cup medals are the PFA are the FA doing enough for the 66 heroes for that generation of footballers it's a, it's a you know it's a, it's a story that's been around what's an issue that's been around hasn't it for a number of few, number of years now um, Jeff Astle's family have been at the forefront of, of, of that particular one um, in, when, you, when you specifically talk about something like heading a football um, I mean, it's, it, it's something that goes beyond kind of professional sport. And if you're going to change something like that, it has to go all the way down to kind of grass, grassroots level. It has to come down to kind of whether it's safe for, for, kids, to, for kids to head the ball um, before, you even, before you even get to kind of a professional game. It's a fundamental change in, um, 
in the way that the game is played. It's such an a, enormous subject. And I know that, um, I think generally speaking, there has been an acceptance within the game for a long time that, um, that players from that era have not been sufficiently looked after um, subsequently. And um, I'm afraid that it takes something like um, Nobby's passing to bring it into, um, to bring it to the forefront of, of, of the game again. Um, on a kind of slightly more positive, lighter note of, of talking about Nobby, um, I don't know how many people have actually watched um, footage of the full game of the 66 World Cup final. It's actually very, very difficult to get a, full, um, a copy of that. I managed to, to get a to get one a couple of years ago and to watch to watch the game it's, it's a fascinating view and you really must watch it and just because how different the game was then to how it is now and one of the things that comes out of that game is what is what a good night what a, a good day Nobby Styles had in that performance people talk about Gordon Banks people talk about uh, Jeff Hurst and the two best players on the pitch in the 1966 World Cup final Alan Ball and Nobby Styles by a by a mile and um Anyone who hasn't watched that game, I really suggest that you do because it's fascinating. Jason, the PFA, you've done a lot of stories. They say they are bringing in change. We are waiting for a regime change. How long do we have to wait? And how many players is it affecting while we wait? So it will be from July to August, September, October. Four months this week that they had their um, report uh, submitted to the PFA and to the governance of the, the organisation, how it runs. They were committed to um, carrying out the recommendations of the report. We've not seen those published. We've not seen the report published. Uh, we're still hanging on. It's the AGM later this month, uh, in November, sorry, for Gordon Taylor, who's supposed to be set, stepping down as the chief executive. And it goes on and on and on and on. And they're dragging their heels. And everything they've done as an organization for decades is dragging their heels. And we've seen this with the uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. There has been a refusal to accept responsibility. There's a refusal to help their members. It's the union. A union protects its members, and this is what it should be doing. It should be looking out for its members. And I think everyone is so scared of liability, of costs, that they just hide behind this time and time again. The PFA will argue against that and say they've done everything they can, and they're obviously doing the research now and funding it and so on and so forth. But it's taken such a long time as ever with the PFA to reach this point. Um, it is a very old-fashioned, very outmoded organisation that needs a complete and utter overhaul and revamp. There's a Charities Commission report coming out as well into the organisation, how they run themselves. I expect that to be very damning uh, in, in the way the PFA uh, is run. There are some very good people at the PFA. There's some very good people on the management committee. I think the chairman, Ben Perkis, is, is, is very well-meaning. And I think they, these guys need to be at the forefront of a change of that organisation because it's a crying shame. Again, we talk about, start the show, we talked about money in football. The PFA is awash with money. It's a wash with money. It should be able to help its members much more than it does. And we've seen that through the lockdown as well. They didn't do enough to help the help footballers during, during lockdown, especially those who are struggling in the lower leagues. And this in particular has been the absolute scandal uh, of the PFA, to my mind, the way they've dealt with dementia. Ian, do you think there will be change at the PFA? I think, I think it'll be, there'll have to be, and it'll be, and, and it's, it's, it's shameful that it's, that it, it, it'll be, it'll be media driven, which it has been, because if it wasn't for um, the work that's been kept, that's been done by people in, the, in this industry um, to talk about it and expose it and highlight it and not let it go away and keep coming back at it and do it again, then I think that the PFA um, would just have continued to rumble along in the same antiquated way that it has done for years. But I think that because of the pressure that is being applied to it from outside the game and now from within other other sides of the game and and former players and current players, it will have to. It will have to. Ultimately, whether those reforms will go far enough is another matter is another matter entirely. But it will have to change the way it is run. It will have to change the way that is, that it distributes that huge pot of money that Jason rightly refers to. It will have to change. It will have to modernise because otherwise. It will continue to look um, embarrassing. It will continue to look almost negligent in terms of its members. In terms of its members, if it does not. Molly, um, another organisation that had been criticised for being out of date, outmoded, the Football Association. They announced their diversity leadership code this week. We spoke to Sammy Mockwell last week about how they were going to change and increase hires for Black, Asian, and mixed heritage coaches, but also 
let's talk this week about how they are increasing or insisting on increasing changes in the women's game that coaching for women's professional clubs 50% of new hires will be female and 15% of new hires will be black Asian or mixed heritage this is a football leadership code that they are encouraging all the WSL teams to take up it's voluntary what's your assessment on what changes that can bring within the game I think it's needed because what I think you look at, and it's something that I was actually reflecting on, you know, obviously it was Black History Month last month. And when I was growing up, I, I looked at players like Ennio Luco, Rachel Yankee, Alex Scott, and they were the players that inspired me to want to watch the women's game and be enthralled in it because they were the very best of English football. And what we haven't seen since then is a real crossover in BAME players into the game. We've, we've seen amazing players, incredible players like Nikita Paris and Demi Stokes that have come through and have done really well, but they're not enough. They're almost the outlier. Um, and I think that's something that the FA have actually realised. They've realised that particularly in the women's game, there isn't that scouting network that you see in men's football, that probably it's one of the things they do well in terms of the actual players coming into the game. There's a good pathway there. And that's something that women's football hasn't really had. It's still, it's still building that structure. And I think this is an important part of that in terms of coaching. It's, it's just the whole environment. Um, we are speaking to um, Jonathan Morgan, who is the Leicester City manager, um, and they've just turned professional. And he was saying that for, I think, four out of five of his seasons, he was the only black manager in the division. And I think that's something that, it has been lacking, and I think the FA, have, they have acknowledged it. They're working on it. They've also recently um, introduced the new women's and girls strategy. And that really highlighted finding black players, female players that have an A license. And yes, it's a small number, but I think that the FA had gone back and found them. And Baroness Sue Campbell was saying that there wasn't in the professional women's game. And the question is, why not? Why, why haven't you made it a more attractive prospect? And that's something that they're trying to, to kind of change now and make sure that those players are involved because, you know, I guess you, you take Enya Luko and she is involved. She's now the sporting director um, of Aston Villa. So that's a positive step that, that players like that, former players, are around the game. And I think we need to see more of that and certainly more diversity, not just on the touchline, but, but on the pitch as well. Jason, you're at the Women's World Cup. If we look where we've come through, it's been... Um, quite a roller coaster, hasn't it? Bringing a conclusion to the WSL during lockdown. Uh, I know Molly wrote about it. And we were all talking about whether that could be a good or a bad thing. Now we're seeing an influx of star names into the WSL. But is this all a false dawn? Where do you think the women's game is right now? I mean, I, I quite like the influx of the star names. I understand it's a little bit commercial and gimmicky, and perhaps you know some of the players haven't played as much as they you'd have wanted them to. But actually, I just think it raises the profile of the game. It gives it extra stature. I think generally it's still heading in the right direction. And I think we just got to, we just got to keep backing it. And I think that there's a big, I think that the, the men's, the men's teams, the men's clubs, the, the kind of, the, the, they, they need to do more. They need to continue to do more. We see, for example, with Liverpool, you know, they've, they've, they've built their new training ground and don't think the women are going to be there, are they, in, in, the, in their new facility? And that, that's wrong. Why, why aren't they all in the same facility? You know, they should be sharing it. Now, obviously, Liverpool turn around and say, we're, we're, there are facilities for the women's game. But I, I don't think that's right. It's not the right look. But I think, I think generally, I'm, I'm still quite optimistic about it. You know, I still think, you know, we, we, it's, it's going to take a long time, you know, and we're going the right direction. Um, I think the quotas uh, is, is a good idea. What, what worries me, the only thing that worries me about them is, as I think Molly's touched on already, are there enough qualified people? And that's not, their, that's not to criticise anyone. Have they been given the opportunity to qualify? I think we've got to look at that in particular, but generally I'm, I'm probably more optimistic than most people that it's, this will take time. So let's just, let's just carry on supporting it. Uh, you talk about the training grounds there. I think someone quipped to me, um, Molly, about um, Alex Morgan being unveiled at the Tottenham training ground and that actually the Tottenham ladies, where do they typically train? Is it just a, an, a, actually in a public park somewhere? Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one at Tottenham because they don't always train at the new centre. Obviously, you know, we've all been there as journalists, walked around incredible, immaculate kind of area. 
and I think it's the fact that um, I remember inquiring with Tottenham about this and it's the changing facilities. Apparently they, they can't have the women there on certain days because they don't have enough changing facilities or something. Um, so that isn't ideal. Um, and I think, you know, particularly you, you mentioned Alex Morgan there and she's probably the most recognisable player. She's not, for me, she's not the signing I really got excited about. The signing I really got excited about was Rose Lavelle because we all watched her at the the World Cup and she was incredible but in terms of a name you know that profile that Jason was talking about Alex Morgan has that and what's actually disappointing is that we haven't seen her play yet it's almost a, a running joke among us journalists right what game are you going to are we going to go to the Alex Morgan game are we going to sit there and watch Alex Morgan in a stand for 90 minutes uh, again and I think particularly with her there's, there's there's question marks about how long these US players will be over here because obviously the reason they're here is because of the NWSL and the question marks over the coronavirus handling in the US. You know, there's an argument that Alex Morgan could be gone like Christmas or she may stay till the end of the season. I don't think she's actually decided that yet. But it just feels like, A, it's a little bit of a false dawn with Morgan. I mean, we're, we're certainly seeing the Manchester City players really flourishing the likes of Sam Lewis and Roosevelt. That's brilliant. But also, I just think it's so disappointing that we've got these incredible players. We've got the rising profile of the game, fat players here that like literally best in the world. It's, it's like having Messi and Ronaldo in the Premier League and no one can go see them. And I think that's what's so disappointing for the women's game. It's building up this momentum. It's building up this, this excitement and players that people want to see and nobody can see them live. And I think it's so disappointing that actually by the time kind of coronavirus has gone out of the way, they may well be back in the US. And this could be the, the only opportunity that you ever get to see an Alex Morgan in the Women's Super League. And I well, think that, would, that's just frustrating. Why would the game not be able to attract someone else next season, the season after? If, they, if they've done it this, if they've done it now, why would they not be able to continue to do that? Because that would imagine is what it is it what it needs to kind of maintain the kind of profile that things like the Women's World Cup gave it. Um, surely they'll be able to continue to attract to attract those those players the u.s players in particular um it's a lot more complicated because they're essentially owned by the u.s soccer federation it's them that kind of give the green light to the deals and i think there's there's a, a quota coming in for how many u.s players will be able to play abroad um which is going to kind of put the stoppers on probably a lot of the players coming over um kind of i think it's from 2021 onwards um which is a little bit of a shame but i think the positive step is the non-US players, the, the likes of Peniel Harder that have come to the league because, you know, she will stay and that is a long-term investment and she is a real star of the game in her own right. So I think, you know, it is definitely a positive move and a, a kind of profile that, that has to grow and continue growing. Her profile is, is fantastic. This is the profile of, of women's football and how it's rising. We did a Be Inspired podcast over lockdown with the women's football and Penitel Harder has rated as our second highest ever podcast. Um, the only person in front of her is Arsene Wenger. So um, this is the growth of the women's audience and the growth of the women's game and the personalities in it. Um, as we're talking about Tottenham players on the bench, I'm just going to ask you, Ian, um, is uh, Jose Mourinho's new launched Instagram account to get attention back on him and away from Bale? <laughs> well, to both, Jose, Jose's never, uh, never, been, never been shy of uh, bringing attention on himself, has he? I have absolutely no idea what he thinks he's, he's, uh, he's gaining, from, gaining from that. But I think as, as Jose's career kind of progresses, you do continue to see slightly different sides to him, don't you? And we've certainly seen a few different sides from uh, Tottenham. Um, the Bale situation, I think, is uh, is simple. There's absolutely no way that, that if Gareth Bale gets his um, his proper 100% match fit and finds the form that we know he's capable of, then he'll be in that he'll be in that uh, top Tottenham team. Um, whether the same goes for Deli Ali or not, I think is a completely different um, completely different subject. And I think that was um, from not not in a good way was a hugely telling um, telling. Um, Evening for Delhi um, in uh, with Tottenham in the in the Europa League the other night um, because I think he was he was almost set up <clears throat> excuse me if not deliberately he was almost set up to fail in that game by by, by Mourinho and sadly he did he did fail that test and it'll be uh, it seems an awful long way back now for for, for Delhi Ali at Tottenham I have to say I don't think we need to worry about Gareth Bale at all I do think we need to worry about Delhi Ali. 
And Jason, do you think this this turn to Instagram now? He hasn't got the behind the scenes documentary. <laughs> is it another way to communicate with his players? What's he doing? What is he doing? Well, well, he, I think he set the account up when he was at Man United. Actually, I remember. I think to remember when he joined Man United, he did some uh, Instagram posts, and then obviously it kind of all died down a bit. But yeah, I mean, Ian's right. You know, obviously with Jose, it's all, all about him. Let's be honest. You know, he's, he's, he wants to make sure there's enough attention on him and. Uh, also, without being too harsh again, doesn't want to take any of the blame, does he? Let's, let's, let's be, he wants to put it out there, the fans know who's to blame and not, it's not him. So yeah, I think we'll probably see more of it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we go, um, I want you to tell me who is your unsung hero? Who's a player that hasn't been generating the headline that's been left on the cutting room copy floor because, and, but you really want to have your moment to rave about them so far this season? To you first, Molly. For me, it's probably Carl Darlow um, at Newcastle because I think, firstly, Newcastle is, is, it is a unique club and it's a unique kind of way that the fans are very, you know, it's amazing if they win, it's terrible if they lose. And, and that's the, the kind of pattern it, it's been for a number of years, um, understandably, I suppose, with, with the kind of situation around the club. But Obviously, Dala has come in. Martin Dubravka has been incredible for Newcastle, and it was such a big blow that, that he was injured. Dala has come in. He's faced, the, I think it's the most shots out of any, any goalkeeper in the Premier League. And I think what we kind of forget a little bit about goalkeepers is, yes, the ones down the bottom end of the league will concede goals because of the sheer amount of shots that they're facing. And I think you, you look at someone like Ben Foster, when he's at Watford, you know, week in, week out, we was watching those games and picking him out as probably one of Watford's best players. Didn't mean he kept a clean sheet every week. He just, you know, had so much more to do. And I think that's kind of an example of, of Carl Darlow at Newcastle was you, you think about that late point they picked up against Tottenham. That game would have been so far out of sight if he hadn't have kept them in it until that point. But it's, you know, when you get a late, a late equaliser, it's, it's not the goalkeeper that gets the credit, is it? Ian? Um, that's a good one, by I like that, uh, Molly. I think I think he's, I think Darlow's got the, something like the um, save percentage is actually the highest in Europe. Um, Seventy-five percent of shots uh, on his goal, he, he saved or something. It's uh, I mean, you, you can argue that obviously he's only having he's only been so he's only been so busy because Newcastle and people are keeping the ball, but he can only do his bit, can't he? And he's done it. Um, I'll go for um, a player at Everton actually, Andre Gomez, um, simply because one of the um, one of the memories of last season, which I don't think I'll ever get out of my head, is um, is being uh, downstairs in my house watching that game against against uh, Tottenham when um, last season when Gomez suffered that absolutely horrendous injury, um, and it's a type of injury that you look at and think, blimey, how is he how is he ever going to walk properly again? Never mind run, never mind be able to play in his position and compete and run over short distances and tackle and be robust and have the confidence in that leg again to, to, to do the things he has to do. And the speed of his comeback has been absolutely extraordinary, which is testament not only to his mental resolve, but also obviously the skill of, of, the, of the medical people who, who pieced him back together. And just to see him playing and playing, in a, in a, as we already discussed on this show, playing in a good side, playing good football is, I think, inspirational to any any footballer who suffers any kind of serious injury going forward because what he's done has been absolutely extraordinary. He was actually picked out last week as well, so he's getting great reviews. No, but it's great because it, it's fantastic. We only had six journalists on in, in you know, two weeks, so um, that that's just proves how much he's impressing everyone. It's great that you we actually have this moment to actually rave about someone because it's so frustrating when we just never get the time to. Jason, for you. Mine's Jack Harrison from Leeds United. Um, I've really been fascinated by Leeds coming back into the Premier League. I, th I think they've been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I wrote a piece last week. I think they've been the most entertaining side since Newcastle in the 1990s in terms of being promoted into the Premier League. And everyone's talking about Patrick Bamford and Calvin Phillips. But I think Harrison has been superb for them. And I, I think he probably deserves an England call-up very, very soon. And he's got an amazing backstory, Jack Harrison. I mean, obviously, he was at, <clears throat> he was at the Manchester United Academy. Uh, he quit the academy and went to America, took up a scholarship. Very, very brave, unusual thing to do. Um, there was a great story he tells about how <clears throat> his mum took him around the Manchester United Academy and showed him the pictures on the walls of all the players who hadn't made it and just said, look, what do you want to do? So she, she obviously took him off to America. He went over there on his own when he was 14 years old, um, got his education, uh, then went into the MLS draft. He was first pick and he was telling the story about how 
he was picked by Chicago Fire, so he did the did the piece of camera saying, "I'm how looking for I'm looking forward to playing for Chicago." Twenty minutes later, he finds out he's going to New York City. Does a piece of camera saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to going to New York City." So, it's, and then obviously the next thing he knows, he's in a bar with Patrick Vieira, and they're, they're sort of talking about what he's going to do. And his teammates are Pirlo, Lampard, you know, uh, David Villa. Gets signed by City, goes on loan to lead to the championship. Now he's one of eight players in that Leeds team who were there when Bielsa first took over, who are now in the team. So what that also shows is that the sort of the strength of Bielsa in terms of coaching players and making them better. And I look at him play and I said to him, you know, are you, what are you? And Bielsa talks about him being a defender, midfielder, an attacker. He's basically three players in one. And the, the amount of work he does up and down the, up and, down the pitch. And, I, I, and he's, a, he's a really nice lad. He's a really good story. Um, very rounded character. Different path from a lot of other players. And really looks like the part in the Premier League. What's interesting for him is what, ha- what happens after this season, you know, with Manchester City. Does he sign permanently for Leeds or does he go back to City? But I really think, without being too over the top, he, he probably deserves a consideration for the England squad already. I, I think he's that good. Well, he couldn't have built a stronger case. So we'll find out if Gareth Southgate is listening and names him in the England squad on Thursday. Being the note is taking a break during the international fixtures. We'll be right back when the Premier League gets underway. But for now, my thanks to Molly, to Jason and to Ian as they scurry away to matches and deadlines. Join us when the Premier League kicks off again to be in the know.